I'm Steve Glaveski, and this is Venture Backed. Welcome to Future Squared. Stephen Hawking once said that intelligence is the ability to adapt to change, so let's adapt. My name is Steve Goveski, and each week I'll bring you conversations with preeminent thought leaders from a variety of fields to help you think in a multidisciplinary way, kick goals in your professional and personal life, and better navigate what is fast becoming a brave new world. Future Squared is brought to you by Collective Campus, an innovation accelerator that works with organizations to unlock their people's latent potential to create more impact for humanity and lead more fulfilling lives. If you need help driving your organization's innovation strategy, visit collectivecampus.io. And without further ado, come with me if you want to live. And it was that kind of the, the the hippies and the hackers kind of swapping DNA, basically, the gene flow between these two biologies that really made that hybrid vigor that Silicon Valley has. That's why Silicon Valley rose to the forefront and not the 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 tech area around Boston and MIT or uh, you know Route 148 or 84. Welcome back to Future Squared for episode number 329 with Adam Fisher. Adam grew up in Silicon Valley playing Atari programming computers, and reading science fiction. He still lives in the Bay Area, but now spends his time thinking about the future, tracing its origins, and writing about it. For Wired, MIT Technology Review, and the New York Times Sunday Magazine. Valley of Genius, The Uncensored History of Silicon Valley, is his first book, and it's a candid, colorful, and comprehensive oral history that reveals the secrets of Silicon Valley, from the origins of Apple and Atari to the present-day clashes of Google and Facebook, and all the startups and disruptions that happened along the way. So how did this omnipotent and ever-morphing place come to be? It was not by planning. It was, like many an empire before it, part luck, part timing, and part ambition, and part pure unbridled genius. We explored a number of areas in this conversation, including one, the origins of Silicon Valley and the influential role of Doug Engelbart and the US government, two, Noel Bushnell and Atari, three, the infamous Xerox Park story, four, what cities around the world can learn from Silicon Valley in their own attempts to recreate the magic, and five, in an era where people are finally pushing back against big tech and the economic tide is slowly turning towards China and Asia, what lies in store for the valley going forward. It took us a little while to warm up in this conversation, but once we did, around the 20 minute mark, we unpacked some awesome insights on not only Silicon Valley, but what it takes to build a thriving ecosystem anywhere. With that, I bring you my conversation with the one and only Adam Fisher. Welcome to the show, Adam. Oh, thank you, Steve. Glad to be here. That's an absolute pleasure to have you on the program. And I'm really excited to be talking with you today about your, well, newish book. It's been out for a number of months now called Valley of Genius, the Uncensored History of Silicon Valley. Um, and I guess in the first instance, I mean, what inspired you to write a book about the history of Silicon Valley? I mean, there are other books out there. Why is this one different, Adam? Well, oh gosh, let me unpack that. First of all, I grew up in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, I was, I thought I had a, a, a normal childhood. <laughs> it was pretty geeky. Uh, but, Playing you know, a lot of Atari? 
I played Atari, but, you know, I, I went to computer camp. It, it turned out to be the first computer camp in the first year on the entire West Coast. Uh-huh. I, mean, I had my own computer and taught myself how to program it in 1981. You know, I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. I hung out at Radio Shack, which is a now defunct chain yeah. uh, where I, you could buy little electronics components. And I, um, you know, had a, what was called the breadboard where you could stick in ICs and, and little jumper uh, cables and do, do crazy, amazing things like make make little LEDs blink, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just, you know, in the air, and I was very drawn to it. And, uh, you know, fast forward, you know, I was also a big bookworm, so, you know, super geeky in a, in a number mm-hmm. of dimensions. And I ended up uh, actually going to, to school on the East Coast and then moving to New York because I decided I wanted to be a writer and coming up the, the kind of magazine journalism ladder and ended up back in my hometown uh, working for Wired, which was the perfect, right? It, it just launched, and it was a magazine about, you know, Silicon Valley and nerdy stuff. So I, you know, I, I really thrived there. But the one thing I noticed uh, over the years was that the, the stories that came out from kind of the mainstream, i.e. New York, uh, journalistic ex- uh, establishment mm-hmm. about Silicon Valley were not the same stories that I knew about Silicon Valley. And I understood, you know, that the, the way that kind of Silicon Valley people um, talked about Silicon Valley and how Silicon Valley came to be was totally different than uh, what I was reading in, say, the New York Times or the New Yorker or what have you, right? Mm. Um, And it was just always frustrating to me, you know? Um, And finally, I, yeah, decided to do something about it. It was actually after I I, I was at a kind of entrepreneur, young entrepreneur event, and I ran into this guy who was, you know, just out of school, super impressed with him he was in his little startup um you know typical founder ceo and i I mentioned atari and this guy said oh yeah that's that was a japanese company wasn't it and i just i almost i almost hit the floor you know i was like what like atari is you know It is the start of modern Silicon Valley. It yeah. is the first young, brash CEO with a new idea, um, taking something to the masses. You know, it is he, old Nolan Bushnell is the founder's mm. name, and and he really is the archetype figure of every Silicon Valley CEO that you've ever heard of since. Um, Steve Jobs was literally his his mentee. Um, you know, even even say a modern uh, Silicon Valley CEO like uh, Zuckerberg is 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 literally taking uh, unwittingly, I'm sure, but uh, um, you know, following in the from the footsteps, taking pages out of the same playbook with like the young kind of company run by 20-somethings, a little bit of wild, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, there are the growing pains, et cetera. So when this guy was didn't know what I thought was the kind of the most elementary thing about the past, I thought, oh, hmm. well, here's here's my work. Here's what I yeah. can do. It felt um, an obligation to, to plug that gap. Yeah, it's an obligation. And I also think... A lot of the problems in Silicon Valley today could be solved if people just understood that, um, you know, where they come from, what the real tradition is, how values really created, you know, how, how these problems, challenges came up in the past and were solved in the past. Um, yeah. In a lot of ways, and you'll see it if you read the book, um, you know, we are just having bigger versions of the same essential problems that 
you know, oftentimes we're solved in the past. So, you know, it's that kind of groundhog day. Yeah. Well, we can, we can deep dive into some of those problems later in the conversation. Um, the, what I found quite striking about the book, and I know other people have pointed to this, is the fact that rather than presenting it in your typical, say, nonfiction narrative type of setting, I mean, what you've essentially done is cobbled together from more than 200 interviews um, a fluid narrative on topics such as, say, the Valley's Inceptions, you've talked about Apple, you know, the Macintosh, Pixar, Twitter, and so on. I mean, what motivated you to essentially present the book in this manner, which, you know, whereby it is a conversation between luminaries, in, in many cases, many luminaries who are no longer with us? So the, the form of the book, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of minor nonfiction literary genre called mm. um, oral history, okay? Mm-hmm. And for, uh, you know, I wasn't even aware of this form before I became an editor at Wired Magazine. And then I fell in love with it because um, it's a way of ripping the writer out of the equation. You know, you can, mm-hmm. you can basically, uh, you know, usually it's reader and then seeing the world through the eyes of the writer. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's great. You know, a lot of times you want that because you've got a really interesting writer, but sometimes you don't. Okay, and I, I didn't want to give the world Adam Fisher's, you know, version of the history of Silicon Valley. I wanted to write the canonical book that just gave the entire modern history. Um, in one in, in between two covers without the filter of like my journalist, you know, my personality. Mm-hmm. Opinions. Mm-hmm. I knew this was going to be a big book. I knew it was going to be an ambitious book. Um, you know, sometimes when I get a little, uh, I get on my high horse, I say, oh, it's the best um, yeah. modern history of the Valley. And, but, you know, I say that because it is the only modern history of the Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the only one that goes, you know, from like 50 years, 68 to, you know, 2008, you know, yeah. 2008, now 2018. Just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. One thing separates OK Venture Returns from great venture returns. Deal flow. Do you wish your firm had more of it? With just 2% of venture firms capturing 95% of returns... Content is becoming essential to cultivating visibility, reputation, brand, and deal flow. Here at Sonic Boom, we specialize in crafting compelling content for venture capital firms. Find out more and lock in your free one-hour strategy call at sonicboom.vc. And now, back to the show. Maybe so, 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 is it, um... so, when, so the decision was like, okay... Let's do it as an oral history. And again, just so your reader, your listeners understand, it's like reading a documentary. Okay, you 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 go, you identify these moments that are canonical that I, I knew, and every real Silicon Valley native knows. You know, the foundation of Atari, etc. Identify the people who were there: Nolan Bushnell, his number two, his number three, this some of the you know, secretaries who were watching the, the action unfold and, and, and programmers and interviewed them all. And then you take those transcripts, just like you were making a documentary film, and you kind of cut them together. Mm-hmm. And so everything is first person quote. And, and the effect, if you're doing it correctly, is it's like you said, very fluid. And it's like you're just really there like at a bar or something or at a dinner party and people are just telling you the story and just chiming in and sometimes disagreeing, which is interesting in itself. And, and, and so it's a much harder way to write. Um, it's all editing. You know, I'd, every time I want a sentence and I need a transition, I need to get some, you know, billionaire to say it for me. I can't just write, you know, the obvious. I have to have someone say it. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's 10x harder, which is why it's such a minor form. But I think it's the right kind of journalism for today because, you know, I think one of the things that the Internet has taught us is that, 
you know, any literate person can write their story. What people want is like, you know, the, the, the journalist himself or herself is no longer this exalted point of view. And so I think this is actually the, the, the form of the future in some ways. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm still in love with it, even though it is a real pain in the ass to do. Yeah, I, I imagine, I mean, as someone who has uh, written a book previously, I imagine, I mean, how long did it take to go from, say, that first word through to submitting this to, to the publisher? Because I imagine having to basically cobble together 200 or extracts from 200 interviews in some meaningful way whereby it is, like I said, fluid. And, you know, just like you said there, I need a transition here. I need to find a quote from a you know, billionaire or whoever to, to pop in. I mean, that to me sounds like it would have been one of the most laborious things in the world. And even just getting all of these quotes into some kind of meaningful structure so that you can easily refer to certain uh, topics and themes and pull out this quote and pull out that quote and put them into the, into the narrative would have just taken so much time. It was four years start to finish. Wow. Wow. 24-7, no vacations, no seeing my friends, you know, um, it that was brutal. It was brutal. I ended up, you know, I thought it was going to take three years, but it took four. I ended up having to sell my house to finance and to finish it. You know, it was brutal. And then, of course, it's another year you're waiting around for it to publish where you're trying to mm -hmm. figure out how to market it, get people <laughs> excited about it. It was really a five-year project. And I, yeah. I did get a nice advance. I'm not gonna. I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. I got a really nice advance. But you know, you take off fifteen percent. You divide by five. It's not a lot of money. Mm. And plus, you know, the tax authorities think you're rich because it all comes in one year. So it's 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 it was it was brutal on a, a number of levels. And yeah. then you know, you it's all like you said. It's all legwork. The work is you know is getting people to talk to you. And then of course you want to travel and you have to do it face to face um, because you get so much better material face to face. And, you know, uh, you know, sometimes the interviews were, were days long. Um, you know, I had two days with Sean Parker. I had two days with Jim Clark. These are both billionaire, literally billionaires. Um, oh, well, multi-billionaires, both of them. You know, and then I would, and occasionally there are people who you can't get, right? They're dead. They're running, you know, trillion dollar corporations. You know, they just, they're not going to talk to, you know, they're, they're being sued, whatever. So, but then you get the transcript, then you get archival stuff, which is a little easier. Um, but, you know, you don't want to just get every, you know, that, you know, you need to go the extra mile. Like, so for Larry Page, like, you know, there was this interview, his first real interview floating around. And it, you could get kind of it on the internet. But I went to the journalist who did that interview and said, hey, can I have your master tapes? Because I want to, you know, I know these, this is an edited interview. I want the whole thing. I want to, you know, grip from that. So you get all this material together. So that's the first thing. And then, you know, I had 10 million words of people talking. <laughs> And then you just cut it down. You gotta, and the process of cutting it down is harder. Yeah, is very difficult. I mean, what I did, you can't even do it on a screen because it's just too much to put on a screen. So you really want maybe a dozen voices in each chapter. That's about the right. Otherwise, it just gets too crowded. It's too many people. You print out all these transcripts. You 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 put them all out on the floor. You know, uh, my office, and you crawl around with scissors and, and uh, scotch tape and then you start literally editing like with scissors and tape and the real art to it yes is is creating that full narrative arc give, giving it that um story with you know um with the motifs and the lead motifs and the plot turns and the plot points and the, of course the you know, start beginning, middle, and end, and that's that's really where the art comes into it. That's really where the my skill as a, a writer and an editor came into it. Because you know, so, you know, some oral histories just come off as like a collection of anecdotes. But what you want is that 
big round feeling of like ah oh, the whole story and as you said it it is i i, I hope it's there i i put it there and people say yeah. they see it so. Well, let's let's get into the actual contents of the book, which you painstakingly put together across four years and twenty-four hour days, and you know, two-day meetings and all sorts of crazy stuff. But um, I mean, a lot of people have opinions on the origins of Silicon Valley, and even in your book, before we even kick into chapter one, we've got lots of uh, conflicting views on what that looked like, whether it was the gold rush, prune farming, you know, the advent of the first radio, uh, whether it was Frederick Terman encouraging um, Stanford faculty and graduates to start businesses, uh, ultimately leading to HP and Varian Brothers, the semiconductor industry. Like, There's so many different things going on that people point to when they say, well, it's because of this, it's because of that. I mean, given all of the work that you did in this space, I mean, can you point to any one thing or person uh, that... Uh, essentially preceded the Silicon Valley we know today or was one of the defining factors in the origins of the valley? Yeah, I have all the intro chapters, basically people arguing or chiming in really about what, what it was about the valley, right? And, you know, you could tell a story in a number of ways. Um, my personal bias, and I think it does come through in the book because, uh, you, you know, the type of stories I tell, um, choose to tell. My personal bias is that, you know, all, all the things you hear are right, okay? But what's, what's the, what is the, the most important thing? So the most important thing for me is cultural, the, the unique culture that came from the kind of overlap of a really solid engineering, computer engineering culture, mm-hmm. and a really um, dominant counterculture. I mean, the counterculture in the Bay Area was the culture, and it was that kind of the, the the hippies and the hackers kind of swapping DNA, basically the, the gene flow between these two, you know, biologies that really made the um, that hybrid vigor that Silicon Valley has. That's why Silicon Valley rose to the forefront and not, you know, the tech area around Boston and MIT or, uh, you know, Route 148 or 84. I forgot, yeah. but, you know, IBM and all that. And, and, and then, or, you know, Texas, Texas Instruments, uh, that kind of area, I guess, around Houston was, was considered very promising 40 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, but it's all been completely overtaken by, by Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, by far, uh, you know, Silicon Valley's really, really gone to the forefront. Although it was not always that way, you know, and even... In the relatively recent past, say between '84 and '95, so that's uh, between when the Macintosh debuted and when Netscape IPO'd, um, Silicon Valley was considered kind of a loser area from a business point of view. Like nothing they did really worked. Hmm. So essentially, we're looking at the intersection of um, art and design. Um, and tech in many, many ways. And I think that's something that Steve Jobs was a big uh, proponent of. And obviously he had his hippie hippie days as well and partnered up with uh, Was the engineer. So perhaps a yeah. good human human uh, manifestation of what you were just yes. talking about there. Um, yes. But with respect to um, any one person, I mean, in your book, you more or less kick off by saying that everything starts with Doug Engelbart. Um, who was Doug Engelbart and why did everything start with him? Doug Engelbart, like Steve Jobs, actually, Doug Engelbart is kind of an outlier. He was an academic researcher at a place called SRI, which was at that point um, affiliated with Stanford. He had, he had, you know, there's a big kind of NASA um, base, Moffat, Moffat Field, um, where a lot of rocketry mm-hmm. experiments were going on. And, and then... Um, you know, the, the chip industry kind of was servicing the rocket industry because, you know, they needed really small guidance computers, basically, mm-hmm. um, for these these things. 
And then the computer industry kind of grew from the integrated circuit industry and, and the government paid for a lot of this stuff because it's the war machine. Uh, and Doug Engelbart was a utopian pacifist mm-hmm. with a computer science degree, one of the first, um, who thought, you know, computers could do so much more. Uh, at that time, computers were, uh, you know, behind glass. You couldn't touch them. You couldn't even see them. You, you, If you wanted to use them, you had to uh, hand punch a bunch of punch cards, um, and, which was like a stack of paper uh, with holes in it. Give it to the tech, to the, the the computer scientist, unquote, and really a technician who would feed it into the machine and you'd come back the next day and you'd get a printout. And half the time you'd made an error in your programming and thus you'd get a bunch of garbage. Um, so Engelbart said, no, 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 no. It's all backwards. The computer should be waiting on the human. You know, uh, they should have screens. Um, they should have keyboards. When you push a you know, a letter on your keyboard, you should see it on the screen. And oh, by the way, you know, I invented this, I envisioned this thing called a mouse that is a pointer. Um, you know, computers should do graphics, blah, blah, blah. He, he was almost laughed out of, you know, the academy, but there was one uh, courageous funder, um, in the, actually in DARPA, the Defense Department, who gave him a bunch of money, Jack Taylor, and, and, who just died, and and he did something that is now um, memorialized. This is one of the great stories of Silicon Valley's as uh, you know the demo, capital capital D, um, and uh, where at the big conference in San Francisco in '68, um, there was a keynote speech. And it was Doug Engelbart showing a live demonstration of this system that he had been kind of talking about for years and years. And the, a remarkable thing is it all worked. It had, he, he, he showed what, in essence, a word processor, a primitive word processor, a primitive email system, a fully working Skype with video. Um, a you know all these things that were like people never even imagined um uh and and it it kind of it just changed the course of computer history everybody said aha that's the thing we really want that's the direction we're gonna go um and that's why i started in 68 also i think doug engelbart is um you know, he he was the first person to say, "I want to I want to change the world and make the world a better place using technology." You know, now we hear that, or at least I hear it, and I kind of I assume someone's lying to me <laughs> because it's been so debased, and people with like the most trivial ideas put on this kind of you know, Steve Jobsian kind of persona and, and you know, and say, oh, I'm just trying to make the world a better. Yeah, yeah. You know that it's really about the money for a lot of these, these kind of newcomers. But, you know, that kind of idea and Steve Jobs and Wozniak, certainly we're trying to do that with the Apple II to some extent. It all comes from Doug Engelbart. And so that's, I wanted to, at the very, so there's a good historical reason to start there. It's really the prehistory of the personal computer revolution. And, mm-hmm. the, and, there's a, and there's a good kind of, you know, history is really written for the future, not for the past, uh, at least a good history. And I, I wanted to remind the entrepreneurs and, uh, of the future, like, that this is where it all comes from. And it's a real thing. And he really did it. Yeah. And that's what we should be reaching for. And remember... The phrase, uh, we're changing the world or we're building a business that's going to change the world, it's kind of become commoditized. And like yeah. you said, you know, 
think there's like Uber, Uber for diapers and all sorts of stuff. And you're yes. really changing the world. It's like, all right, you're not really changing the world. You're making people's lives maybe like 0.001% more convenient. And that's, that's fine. And you're making that's fine. And that's fine. Why, why should we be ashamed of that? I mean, exactly. but, but, exactly. but, let, but you know, let, but let's call, you know, let's call be a spade honest. a spade. <laughs> I, that's, that's another debased. Uh, yeah. But, but uh, with the with the government, I mean, we, obviously DARPA was really, really influential in terms of um, empowering entrepreneurs um, and uh, people like uh, Doug, essentially, to go out and do the kinds of things that they did. I mean, without that government investment, um, oftentimes motivated by military interests, it's hard to see that Silicon Valley would have become what it became, what it has become today. Yeah, but maybe if the governments weren't. Um um, you know, funding war machines, we wouldn't have wars. I mean, I, w- I would rather ch- I would rather uh, do away with government R and D if it meant the end of war than 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 justify you know war because we've got you know I don't know some money to some research computer scientists like it, that's yeah. that is uncompelling to me and and in fact. The greatest thing Silicon Valley ever made is this this giant collaborative machine that the whole world is now making called called the internet. And so the internet was, uh, you know, the you can say, oh yeah, well, DARPA was there for the first internets, and it's true. And but then hey, you know, um, uh, the web, which is the only thing that ever made money on the internet uh, was created by, you know, French and English, you know, taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. And then they, and then what's the ROI for them? Well, because, you know, it, you know, 99.99, you know, nine bar percent of the money created on the internet happened after Netscape, um, mm. you know, put out a, a kind of consumer grade um, browser with security uh, built in, so that you could, uh, you know, crypto built in, so that you could transact, um, i.e., send credit card numbers securely, not in plain text. So, um, so you know, all the money that was that that was made was really made after the private sector got got turned loose and and this was pointed out to me actually by Jim Clark Jim Clark is 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 clearly one of the few geniuses in value genius uh he you know he was a big big deal in kind of the the silicon age he he did some very uh you know he invented Kind of graphics, a graphical chip, put it into a um, computer called Silicon Graphics, which ran, you know, all you know Disney kind of graphics and mm-hmm. Pixar graphics, as well as a lot of uh, three-letter agency type graphical needs. Um, and then he 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 left and said, "I'm going to do something different," and and threw a bunch of money into making Netscape, i.e., you know, going into this new kind of software, online software world. Um, So he did it twice, and he's the only guy to really straddle that chasm between the old kind of hardware world and the new uh, kind of scalable internet software world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, we've kind of jumped from... uh, uh, Douglas Engelbart in the, the 60s through yeah. to Netscape in the 90s. I guess there was a whole bunch of stuff that happened in between. And um, early in your book, you do talk about Xerox Park, uh, the Palo Alto Research Center. Yeah. Um, I mean, what was Xerox Park all about and what essentially happened when they opened the, the proverbial kimono? <laughs> well, this is the, the most classic uh, story in Silicon Valley. Like, this is literally the one 
everyone knows. Um, so that so it had to be in there. And, but uh, there's a lot of new wrinkles because I went back and, and uh, interviewed everybody again. But but the basic story is that Engelbart system was um, the you know Engelbart kind of showed that system and Xerox Park kind of saw it and ran with the idea. So what was Xerox Park? Well, Xerox, it's, it's, it's Xerox is uh, it, owned by Xerox, but it's the Palo Alto Research Corporation. So Xerox is an East Coast firm. It was the kind of Microsoft of its day. It invented Xerography. So every office in the world paid it money to make Xerox mm -hmm. copies. And they decided to have an R&D lab, and, and, quite, and by design, they wanted it as far away from the mothership as possible. And, they, uh, uh, and then they just hired all the best computer scientists in the world and said, make the office of the future. What was that? Well, all these computer scientists just seen what Engelbart did, and they proceeded to refine it. And and whereas Engelbart had what's called a time-sharing system, these guys said, you know what? We're going to put a computer uh, on every desk, or technically under every desk. Um, this was the arguably the first real personal computer. They made a couple hundred of these things called, again, Altos. Mm -hmm. And uh, then they wrote all the software for it. Um, and so they wrote the first real word processing program that's, uh, that looks modern. In fact, the guy who wrote it went to left and went to Microsoft and then wrote Word. It became the highest paid employee who ever lived. Um, and so they also created what we now know as the graphical user interface, i.e., i.e., little files that you could drag drag around and um, that kind of white screen with black letters. Before that, it was a black screen with usually green letters. Yep. And um, Windows, they created the idea of Windows. Like you don't have one computer; you have as many computers as you have Windows, and they're all running at the same time um, using the same machine. So they had this all running in the lab and Apple had, uh, had come out in 77 with, with uh, I'm sorry, uh, in the early 70s, let's see, no, it was 77 um, with the Apple II and they were looking for their kind of next act. And someone, you know, some of the computer scientists who worked for the rapidly growing Apple um, convinced Steve Jobs that he had to go over to Park and see this Alto thing. Mm -hmm. And so this is the opening of the kimono. Um, it was considered, it was very controversial within um, Park. They said he could see the regular demo, but we're not going to show him how we do it because then basically they wouldn't own it, own the intellectual property uh, because there'd be a public disclosure, I think is the legal term. Anyway, this was a huge argument between Park and Xerox Corporate. But Xerox Corporate said, no, they're paying for it because you know, we're, we're, they're letting us invest in Apple, right? Anyway, so Steve got this super demo where he saw how this all kind of worked and he brought his top programmers there who were at that time working on the Lisa and they essentially copied everything to put in the Lisa and then into the Macintosh, which was kind of like this, the super, the, the Lisa <laughs> for the masses. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why you say in the in the book, good artists copy a great artist still, which is essentially what, what Steve Jobs was when he, when he pulled that move. Exactly. So that's a Picasso quote. And uh, yeah, the idea is that if, if you're really great, insanely great, perhaps you don't, you know, people don't, don't know that you copied <laughs> someone yeah. else because you made it new. Um, but he definitely copied it and he definitely um, pushed the ball forward. There are uh, technical advances um, in the Macintosh graphical user, user in, interface that are, are not in the original Alto.
Mm-hmm. Definitely. And um, I mean, that's something that uh, in terms of uh, copying, I mean, there's that book, Great Artists Steal, essentially. And also Peter Thiel, something he talks about is, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs who get uh, caught up in trying to be first movers, but he says there's a lot of advantage in being essentially the last mover. So wait for other people to design and develop products, but come in there and like like Steve Jobs did with the graphical user interface, take that, but make it maybe an order of magnitude better. Um, and that's essentially what people flock to rather than trying to come up with the breakthrough thing in the first place. Yes, there's a there's a, a guy who actually was a instrumental in creating the iPhone who talked about this. And his, his way of saying it was, the pioneers get the arrows. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, but the hive mind watches and learns, uh. and that's how he described this dynamic. That is absolutely a Silicon Valley d- dynamic, like um, this fast following thing, or you know, well, we could simplify, simplify and commercial commercialize it. You don't always mm. have to be first; you just have to exactly. Be first. Yeah, and so just on that Silicon Valley mentality, I mean, uh, former Future Squared guest Kevin Kelly appears. Throughout the book, which is totally understandable, obviously your first uh, employer, well, one of your first employers as a writer as well, over at Wired Magazine, and very influential in the space. Um, now he uh, says in the book that you know Silicon Valley, it's not about say transistors, in terms of the origins and what makes it great. It's about that culture, that hacker mentality, the way entrepreneurs go about going from zero to one, essentially to quote Peter Thiel, um, when it comes to creating new value. Um, why, I mean, we're seeing that this type of mentality, this hacker mindset is starting to be, or it's the, the export of that mindset started years ago. And we're seeing it pop up all over the world, but perhaps it's a lot more pronounced in the Valley than it is anywhere else. I mean, what is this essential hacker mentality that Silicon Valley has and, and why is it so powerful? Let me actually read to you uh, Kevin Kelly's quote. Um, it starts my last chapter and he says, the biggest invention in Silicon Valley was not the transistor, but the startup model, the culture mm-hmm. of the entrepreneurial startup. Um, and I totally agree. Agree. Um, it's where this kind of um, hippie, hip, hippie hacker alliance ended up. This kind of this thing called the startup. This, you know, the it's, it's a DIY mentality you know but in the market um for technology Mm -hmm. um and you know it's no longer a secret with these tools that silicon valley invented where communication is instant instantaneous and global like really anybody who's smart and motivated can kind of figure out what it means to be a startup how startups work right yeah this model will not be limited to Silicon Valley in the future. In some ways, it's it's the easiest place to do a startup because everybody is familiar with the model from your real estate agent to your banker to you know your florist, like it, and they will you know happily t- talk about taking equity or you know you know we'll kind of cater to these kind of small, nimble, usually poor, impoverished companies. Um, with the hope that, you know, down the line, they'll be richly rewarded. Um, However, you know, uh, Silicon Valley has, you know, kind of decided that they don't want, uh, they don't want to house newcomers by building skyscrapers, you know, Um, they, uh, and it's, it's, it's driven up the price of uh, of uh, you know housing and the cost of living, so that it's made it really unattractive for young people. And 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 frankly, young people are where the the new ideas come from. So that's just a long way of saying that I think in the future there's going to be a lot of Silicon Valleys, and I mm-hmm. think that they'll be kind of specialized, right? It, you won't have a Silicon Valley that's just like our Silicon Valley, but you may have a, an AI Silicon Valley, or you may have a drone Silicon Valley, or you may have a, 
you know, whatever, natural language processing, Silicon Valley, okay? Yeah. Um, yeah. And we've already seen, now this is not just me kind of writing science fiction, we are already starting to see that. I mean, Shenzhen in China, where, where Apple makes its iPhones and everybody else makes everything, is kind of a manufacturing Silicon Valley and exists right now. It has the same kind of like, uh, you know, kind of primordial soup of small, uh, nimble companies all with their own little niche trying to do something, right? And little suppliers and this kind of web of, of um, interconnections. Um, and I think we're just going to see that more and more. Um, but... But I think Silicon Valley itself will probably remain kind of first among equals because I think it, it's where the money is now. And so it will probably end up as kind of the investment capital, the financial capital of the future. So that's where, where the big, the, you know, where the trillion dollar pots and the people who are making the bets with that money are, are going to, to kind of reside. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess just on that, I mean, I think it, that's absolutely, um, well, I can't say it's absolutely true, but it does echo a lot of thoughts that past guests on the show have had around, you know, these Silicon Valleys of the world. And rather than just trying to copy uh, Silicon Valley it's about identifying what your particular city does well naturally, what sort of um, ecosystem and infrastructure you can already leverage. And for example, if I was to take the city of Detroit with its history of um, automobile manufacturing, then perhaps it can become you know, a Silicon Valley of, say, um, aut automotive or drones or something to that effect, rather than trying to be the Silicon Valley of, say, tech startups and of things of that persuasion. Um, and, and I think we're seeing this play out across the world. I mean, China, in terms of its gross national products in the past 30 years, it's gone up by a factor of 20. It surpassed the United States in, I think it was 2014. Um, and now companies like Tencent and Alibaba feature in the world's top 10. So they're obviously making a, a big run for it. And they're no longer just copying what comes out of the Silicon Valley. They're actually creating a lot of innovations of their own. So um, I, I do agree that there will be lots of disparate Silicon Valleys all over the world. With respect to Silicon Valley, maintaining its sort of first amongst equals, being the future financial center of the world, um, do you think it's, uh, there is a, a threat that China may take that mantle in some way, shape or form, or at least maybe Shenzhen or, or Shanghai or, or Guangzhou or somewhere in, in the southeastern sort of entrepreneurial heartland of China, given some of the political, economic um, changes that are, that are afoot on a, on a global uh, macroeconomic level? Well, sadly, I've never had the opportunity to visit China, so mm -hmm. sure. I'm at a, a bit of a disadvantage. If any listeners out there want to want to you know want to sponsor my my visit <laughs> to China, I'm happy to speak, and, um, consult, and or what have you. But um, I've met a lot of entrepreneurs from China, and mm. they pretty much to a person say, "You don't get it." Adam, <laughs> we've already left you guys behind. Yeah, the idea that you guys are still using credit cards to pay for things is mm. like a joke, you know. Um, so, and I think, um, you know, I think this kind of um, uh, kind of trade war uh, that Trump is. Uh, initiated is really like is not a blip a blip uh it's not it's not just trump's craziness i think it's really what we're seeing is a kind of a new version of the cold war that uh, we grew up grew up with mm. um i think it's going to last for a long time and i think you know i you know uh china got to to be so powerful uh and have said have you know the the Alibaba and the Tencent and the, um, what is it, the Beidou and uh, those companies, which are the only serious rivals in the world to, you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, mm. Apple, because they cut, you know, they, they did this great firewall of China and they cut the internet 
kind of off from the rest of the world um, and limited investment and basically we're totally protectionist. And so I, I, you know, I'm just surprised that we still have, in effect, one internet. I, I think what we're going to see is a, a further fraction, um, fracturing. I mean, you see Russia already and a lot of the other kind of more authoritarian com- countries already making moves to um, reroute data and make it so they can actually cut off the internet and have separate internets and mm. and maybe inculcate their own Ubers and Facebooks, which have been, you know, this has been done. And, and it's an effective strategy for these country, uh, countries. And I think we're just going to see more of, more of that. Um, and, you know, I mean, I know Facebook wants to be the one phone book for the entire world and messaging system, but you know that's not it's not really. I'm not sure that's good for the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's certainly the phone. The way the phone, you know, after Alexander Alexander Graham Bell invented the phone system, there was many many different phone companies. Every every country in essence, ended up with its own phone company. And then there was, you know, switching equipment that was, uh, and protocols that were developed to join them so that they could all talk to each other. Um, but it's not like all the money um, mm-hmm. and control flows back to one dude named Alexander Graham Bell or Zuckerberg. And why should it? You know, yeah, like, yeah. I'm sure the investors of Facebook would love that. I'm sure the boosters of Silicon Valley thinks that's really neat. I'm sure the CIA and the NSA fucking love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's it as but for 99% of the world, it's a bad idea. And I and China was the first to figure that one out. Yeah, that's kind of the same as Uber as well. I mean, you previously had taxi companies in every city and they would hire people locally and they'd pay taxes locally and the benefits would flow locally. Whereas now you have Uber in every city and a lot of those benefits flow back to Silicon Valley. Um, But remember Uber, there is no technical fucking secret sauce involved in building an Uber. No. Uh, Anybody can build an Uber. What you just need is to get Uber out. So they're, you know, of your, first because they're they have this first mover advantage and there's this these scaling effects that lead directly to monopoly um and you know austin for example i believe uh austin texas has has, you know said no uber and they have some municipal system i'm 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 a little shaky on those details but it, it has happened in municipalities in the united states and clearly other countries i think uh UAE in, in the Middle East, Uber just mm-hmm. bought like the big competitor. You know, I think scaling is great, but I don't. I don't think it's. It, it's really it really benefits investors more mm-hmm. than uh, individuals um, in certain countries for the exact same reason that you suggested. We could have something just as a efficient as uber but um but like an uber for every market and owned by a different person it could all even run on the same open source software um yeah well we've seen um grab in in southeast asia basically buy uber out in that part of the world and you know that was founded by malaysian uh entrepreneurs um, so I think that's a great case study for what you're, you're yeah. pointing to there. Um, but perhaps just to close up, I mean, you pointed to the housing price crisis earlier, but then there's a lot of, I guess there's a lot of pushback. It's something that we haven't seen perhaps before in terms of Silicon Valley and technology up until now. It's like, yeah, technology, it's making our lives better. All praise Zuckerberg and all these other guys. But ultimately now, I mean, we're seeing Zuckerberg appear in Congress for numerous privacy violations. Um, we're seeing people like Peter Thiel and, and Tim Ferriss speak openly about leaving the Valley because on one side, it's becoming quite homogenized in terms of its thought. Um, Peter Thiel says there's a lot of conformity of thought and he doesn't really agree with a lot of the far left uh, liberal politics. Um, there's 
the tech addiction argument that people like Tristan Harris are making and, and suggesting that even, even Sean Parker basically said that, you know, people, uh, technologists are basically exploiting vulnerabilities in human psychology. So we're seeing a lot of pushback across a number of different lines in terms of yeah. Silicon Valley. I mean, where, where do we see this going? Because uh, well, I imagine you've thought about this a lot more than, than I've I have. i thought about this a lot. I think, yep. the, I think the most effective and compelling argument to Americans mm-hmm. Uh, is the mon- uh, voting Americans uh, is the monopoly argument. Um, mm-hmm. Remember the Tea Party, and I'm not talking about the right wing Tea yes, Party yes. that elected Trump, but the actual Tea Party uh, that kind of was sparked the American Revolution, and um, that was a revolt against. The, Brit- the British East India Company. It was a revolt against the- a company, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not, I mean, a company bigger than a, than a nation, but a-, a company because they had become a rapacious monopoly. And what what is kind of the most amazing part of, of the Silicon Valley story is all these companies, Facebook, Google, Apple, um, that we see as giants today all were started as kind of you know within living memory um and they were started as kind of power to the people you know genuinely let's make the world better kind of a better place kind of ideas and they and and they all turned to one extent or another into these kind of uh rapacious rent seeking monopolies who you know went from kind of helping people get shit done to exploiting people mining them as if you know for data as if they're an actual resource or taxing them at a level you know that's you know useless um so uh in almost every case uh it's the same people who founded them are in charge of them after they kind of turned into monopolies and monopolies um, are hated in this country and and you see both the kind of lumpen right and the lumpen left make these kind of stupid arguments against monopolies but then you see also the intellectual right and the intellectual left and even kind of uncategorizical kind of intellectuals like the libertarians all of them are making arguments against monopoly and so you are definitely going to see a political change you know monopolies are legal in this country if if they were established legally but you will will see um i think it'll be slow but you will see political legal maneuvering to change the rules of the game so that they they, they they'll either be uh, eviscerated or broken up, and you know it'll start in Europe because um, uh, you know Europe has everything to gain and nothing to lose by by you know finding Google to death. It's just like it's just money in their pockets, right? Even if they're wrong, and but it will be followed up, you know, um, by by change here too. I, I think it's inevitable because. Literally, you know, everybody is turned against them. Yeah. Except the common user, you know, the non-voting. You know, like I still use all these companies' products every day, and I they definitely make my life better. <laughs> um, but uh, but I think it is worrisome that there's so much power concentrated in so few hands. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Well, Adam, I think we are just about out of time. This has been an absolute pleasure picking your brain on all things Silicon Valley. Um, and we have not even scratched the surface of what is yeah. in the book. So readers should really head out there and pick up a copy of Valley of Genius, the uncensored history of Silicon Valley. Um, they can find out more about the book over at valleyofgenius.com and connect with you over at Adam C. Bisher uh, on Twitter. Is there anything else they should be checking out, Adam? Nope. You know, if, if you want my email, it's in the book. It's uh, so uh, read the book, write me, write me a letter. We can talk. 
Awesome. Awesome. Love it. We'll, we'll add that to the show notes for our listeners again. Again, thanks, Adam, for giving up some time to, to speak on Future Squared. It's been great. Cheers. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been you know, a real pleasure and uh, uh, it's nice to have a real high-level conversation. That's a wrap. If you like what you heard, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to it and share it with a colleague or friend. Venture Backed was brought to you by Sonic Boom Media, a content agency helping VC firms generate better deal flow. Head over to sonicboom.vc to learn more and sign up to our fortnightly newsletter for more podcast episodes and venture insights.